is the Beyond the Studio podcast, and you're listening to Season 2, Beyond the Studio West Coast Edition. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller, and we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist. Here we'll share honest conversations with artists, makers, and business experts, and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio. Support for this season comes from Southern Exposure's Alternative Exposure Grant Program in partnership with Facebook's Artist in Residence Program and the Andy Warhol Foundation. If you find value in listening to Beyond the Studio, we'd love to ask you to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It's the easiest way to show us some love and to help others find the podcast. Thank you so much in advance for letting us know what you think and for supporting the show. You might hear some adult language used occasionally on the show, so please be mindful of those around you and pop in some headphones if needed. When I'm not working on the podcast, I'm working on my fiber art and illustration brand, Close Call Studio. So if you want to follow along with my own journey, you can check me out on Instagram at Close Call Studio or check out my website at CloseCallStudio.com. It's Nicole here, your other Beyond the Studio co-host. I'm a painter, muralist, and installation artist. If you want to see more of my work and studio process, you can find me on Instagram at Nicole Marie Muller or my website, which is Nicole Marie Muller. That's M-U-E-L-L-E-R.com. If this is your first time tuning in with Beyond the Studio, first of all, thank you. Welcome. We're so happy to have you here. Second of all, this is actually part two of a two-part episode, and you might be confused if this is your first episode that you're listening to. So do yourselves a favor and go listen to part one first so that this episode actually makes sense. Well, since we're kind of on the topic of project management, which would, I think, contribute to time management as a mother, artist, (laughs) teacher, just wearing all of the hats. How are you managing your time and making sure that you're present with your family, present with your art practice, present with your teaching career? Like, how are you doing that? Yeah, it's pretty crazy. (laughs) (laughs) It is a Definite, I don't know. I'm not sure how I'm always doing it. Part of it is I really value balance. So I definitely do a lot of stuff. Like I have a holistic doctor I've been working with since I, you know, for 15 years. And I make sure that like my, (laughs) my system is balanced and I make sure that I go to dance classes so that I don't go completely crazy. I also have classes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And I, so what do I do at the beginning of the year? I always write myself a set of goals. So I try to kind of think about where I am and where I want to be in some way that's like probably ambitious, but realistic. And Mm -hmm. that includes things that are like what I want out of the work and things that are really really benchmark career things. And then I have a rhythm of working that involves like periods where I'm doing a lot of research and collecting and making source material, if that makes sense. Like my process is kind of to create a structure within which I can either layer images and materials or 
sort of bring together cast or collaborators. You know, it sort of depends on what the work is. But so, I mean, I, I have like this board behind me where I write down all of my deadline. Like this is my little <laughs> whiteboard. Oh, great. And yeah. that's all of the things for all of the projects that I have to do. So I come into the studio, I update that, you know, I make, mm -hmm. I keep a calendar. I work in a way that's really like, it's really like a job. I mean, I, I treat my art as the most important job I have, so it gets the priority. Besides my kids, sorry, that's, yeah, that's not quite right. But I mean, so there's, <laughs> there's like, there's the, the job thing is like, I, I do have a work schedule and all of that, and I plan my time really carefully, and I, I like do project schedules for each body of work, so I know like what what's what. So I go, I have these periods where when I'm teaching a lot, like this past year was crazy because I was interim chair of the graduate fine art program at CCA. And I'm just phasing out of that now. And I bought a sabbatical by doing that, which means like from January to, or from mid-December to next September, I will be paid. And I don't, I don't know. I'm not of a, of a category of faculty where I get sabbaticals normally. So this is like a huge deal for me and I couldn't be more excited about it because honestly yeah. juggling is hard but I do so I I basically have things that I do in my studio and then I have things that I can do at home um, with my kids like I do make sure that I spend really quality time with him with them doing stuff but they've been in full-time school since two and also now they're 12 and they have tons, they do tons of things themselves. Like they have, one of them is a dancer and dances a lot. And, you know, there's just kind of different things that occupy their time. So I find now it's different because when I go home at night, I end up having another work day at night because they're mostly doing their own thing. Like they have homework mm, yeah. or activities or they're in their rooms or whatever. So, you know, we spend quality time. I make sure that I have really good conversations with them because they're super interesting at this age. Um, I think one thing that people yeah, don't... you're about to have three teenagers. I am about to have three teenagers. Yeah, they're 12, <laughs> 12 and a half. Um, and I think one thing that people don't say about kids very often is that they really do give you energy as well as take it. So it's like um, they're pretty interesting and I think I get a lot out of them out of have you know out of them being around like they sort of become this inspiration or form of support or also I think a lot of my work is underpinned by this like a neo-futurism and really thinking about the next generations and all of that so in a way it's like it's always there, <laughs> you know, that thing. Um, but, but so I, balancing isn't always easy and I definitely have bad days with it, but I try, I do a lot of things. I've also kind of become much more efficient with my decision-making and I do a lot of things. I talk to myself a lot about like, um, this decision is not ready to be made today. So I, that work can't, that thing can't happen today. Like there's, there's, I, tr I think I set up my work in a way that means that it, once I've kind of got the research part done and the sort of, I, I, there's, it's very compositional, there's like the making part that happens a lot on days that I'm not teaching. In my summer, it's really full time. I mean, that's like sort of the luxury of teaching is that you have this full time summer. Um, I make sure my kids are engaged in really enriching things in the summer so that I, uh -huh. can, I can do this. And that means that I'm thinking more and more about also making sure that I generate enough income because that stuff costs, you know, like actually supporting their activities so that I can do mine is 
also a balance. There's just tons of uncertainty that goes with it, which is just there, which is mm -hmm. like kind of also a subject that comes back into my work a lot, which is like this idea of living in an uncertain time in an uncertain way, you know, the unknown, the state of the unknown, which is like completely at the center of being an artist. And also yeah. I feel like is in the center of a lot of good work, <laughs> you know? So, um, mm -hmm. yeah, I try to be sort of, I try to kind of really embody that stuff so that I don't go crazy with the instrumental side of scheduling and stuff. But I do also do that too. And I keep on top of it. And then I have like, you know, moments where I can hire assistants. Like I hire, when I have a budget, I'll hire assistants. Or like I just sold a couple of paintings, so I'm gonna hire someone to help me update my website because it's totally out of date. And um, that's kind of a problem, you know? So I don't keep up with everything all the time. <laughs> it's hard yeah. to. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if anybody does, really. Yeah. I liked, uh, Renu, how you said that you give yourself permission to leave the decision for another day, mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. um, sometimes you just have to yeah. be accepting of the fact that you can't do everything in the moment Yeah, all the time. yeah, or something about the work, like, isn't ready to decide mm -hmm. that, you know? Like, I actually feel like work is animate. Like, it's an animate force that, like also sometimes starts to take take over and, and make decisions for itself which sounds yeah I mean I don't know how that sounds but anyway that's sort of really how I am when I'm working well it kind of goes like that too mm -hmm. yeah no it it like brings me back to the idea of the the work being the the genius and sometimes it's not ready to shut down <laughs> yeah. it has more to give and you just have to you're along for the ride and sometimes it just doesn't show up and you're like all right. Yeah. Not today. Yeah, exactly. You know, that's really amazing. And then it's like also trying to forget about the myth that you have all this unrestricted, uninterrupted time because like oh that just, <laughs> I don't know, people don't really live like that anymore. I remember Sylvia Gruner, who's this artist in Mexico City, saying that to me like 20 years ago or something. When I was there, I was in Mexico City for a bit. I would, did this long traveling thing after I finished my MFA. That's one thing I did. I actually went and traveled for like six months at one point with the person I was with. Oh, wow. Well, the person I was with at the time was finished, finished a PhD and we just like went and traveled and tried to think about whether there was another way to live. And I remember her saying that, her saying something about the myth of this sort of uninterrupted, like flowy work time, which I know you can have for chunks, but like, mm -hmm. it's just not, you know, I mean, I don't know, unless you're sort of like an independently wealthy uh, person <laughs> yeah. living in another century that was probably male and white, it's not going to happen right now. Right. You know, it's just not how it is. <laughs> so, you right. know, we also like seeing... We don't have such privileges. Yeah, like I, I listened to that Wendy Red Star interview that you did, and mm. I loved what she was talking about, about how like going to the shop and finding weird fabric, or I can't remember what it was she'd found in the, you know, that that was work yeah. and that that's really important to recognize that that's work. Oh yeah, you know? her loser time. Yeah, that was amazing. Yes. I was like, yeah, that's so right, you know, that like that stuff. I've been adapting that term in my own life so much <laughs> since the episode. And even earlier today, I was on the phone with my mom and she was like, yeah, I'm just having some loser time because of course she <laughs> listens to the show right. and I was like it's a movement 
<laughs> yeah. Yes. No, that was really, really spot on. Like there's just has to be time for stuff like that, you know? And yeah. I don't think the, I think the work kind of suffers if you're so, yeah. So I do, I just sort of do both. Like I, I have a production schedule and then, you know, you let it slide when it isn't yeah, happening. Fluidity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's always reassuring to hear. Cause I think that is one of the myths that is really damaging to the self-esteem of a lot of artists, which is just that, you know, you'll, you'll have, if you're not living this life where everything kind of revolves around the studio and you're able to just spend every waking moment there that you're somehow not moving the work forward. Mm-hmm. And so um, mm-hmm. both expanding our definition of what that studio time really is. Um, like you're referencing Wendy, just talking about her visiting the thrift store being a part of her research and a part of her studio time but also really talking about the realities of having a pull in a lot of different directions and how you know your studio time happens after you've been done teaching and after you've spent time with your kids and how it might only be a few hours in the evening for months on end but then maybe there are other times in the year when you're really opened up and how there's much more of an ebb and flow um, and it's not necessarily realistic to think that you'll be able to spend your entire day working every waking moment yeah although I have to say it is important that I I do like I don't go months I can't go months on end like I have Mm -hmm. I've have pre like I think part of part of what I've done is to not I mean, this year was a real exception because I was chairing. But even with chairing, I wasn't working like five, nine, I wasn't working like nine to five, five days a week, you know. So I don't, I, I'd make sure, like, this year was sort of, there was periods where I only had two days in the studio. But I have been careful, really careful about trying to keep teaching to a certain amount of time. Mm probably to the detriment of that end of my career. Like I haven't been like applying for tons of tenure track positions and stuff like that, which now I'm not sure was the best idea. But um, I, I don't know if I could have done that while the kids were young. And so I didn't. But I was also in a situation where I was able, well, I was sort of able to not do that. Yeah, I was also curious if you've set your life or schedule up in a way that is a little more seasonal. Because um, when you were describing the... Uh, the time in the summer being a lot more open and, you know, your work schedule at CCA obviously following the academic year mm-hmm. or being on a semester cycle. Yeah. Um, it even had me think about how Amanda's work, um, although she's self-employed and has her own business, is also very seasonal right. and kind of follows these predictable flows. If that has kind of determined, like, to what extent you're taking on projects or if you kind of set your, your year up in a way to follow that flow, if you have any sort of seasonal shifts that happen? I have seasonal shifts, but I don't think I'm necessarily in control of them. Like I don't, I mean, it's like, (laughs) I'm just thinking about that. Like I think um, things, okay, like I said, I really do try to keep my studio, I mean, my teaching to something like part-time or a certain amount of days a week at least. Um, but there mm-hmm. are periods of time in the year where it's like pretty intense. I think what I do when I'm doing a, when I have, because the projects don't always get scheduled on my time, but I do think a lot about like this, when I can do what. And so, you know, if, I mean, I, th- I, I tend to do 
more of the kind of researchy thinking stuff during teaching periods. Although I think what I do actually, I have to think about this because I think what I do is that I've got a, a bunch of projects going on at the same time and they're in different stages. And so it means that like on a day where I do only have the evening, I can do stuff that's more like admin or more, you know, mm -hmm. doing a bit of research or reading or something like that or figuring out one component. And then on a day when I have free in the studio, I make sure that I'm like doing production that I can't do at home. Yeah, that's interesting. It's almost like having these projects at different stages allows you to capitalize on the different stretches of time that you might have to put towards them. Yeah. Whereas if yeah. everything was in this production phase, you'd be a little limited in terms of when you could work on that. But in this way, it sounds like you're able to at least kind of incrementally move everything forward yes. in stages. Yeah, for sure. And then like there's projects where, I mean, I absolutely couldn't do it if I couldn't hire people. You know, like the mm -hmm. some of the commission stuff, I've, I've definitely had to hire people to get things done in time. Yeah, and are these usually studio assistants or admin assistants or like what type of help have you been hiring on? It's usually studio assistants. And well, for the Young Project, which was like massive, I need and, and a short time frame for what it was. I had both. I had like a production manager who was also doubled as a studio assistant. And I had and then I had another main studio assistant and then I had an animation assistant. I mean, it was a really crazy project and I needed a lot of help. And then there was like a couple of things that I need, like there were problems that came up that had to be resolved, like that didn't work the way I thought I, they would. So I had to like do figure out workarounds. And then I had like a sewing assistant. I mean, it was, yeah, because the scale of that stuff was really pretty intense and it involved like rearranging my studio every couple of days <laughs> because mm. things had to dry and there was like all of that, you know, it was like, it was very, very logistically complicated. So the, the my assistants were like superstars in terms of helping me figure out how to organize things and organize the production. And I probably would have gone completely insane without them. Like that was definitely a group effort. And a lot of late nights and then other other times it's like I'm just hiring someone to do very specific tasks like um, a lot of photoshop masking for video production and stuff like that like elements of the production that I can I can give to someone else easily yeah and how are you finding your assistants typically? Are these the same artists that are kind of on call for projects as needed? Or are you having to retrain or bring on new people for... For different things? Um, well, mm -hmm. one of them is somebody that I call uh, that I can continue to work with. They have a lot of different work and are an artist themselves. It's an ex-student and mm -hmm. they're really, really skilled and amazing. So, and can do so many different kinds of things like from photography to web stuff to studio assistant stuff. So that person I've hired for several things and also collaborated with recently, which is great. And then the production assistant now works full-time at the Codist, but she was recommended by somebody, um, actually an artist that also works with the gallery. A bunch of other people came through her because she knew a bunch she knew some people who were like sort of just looking for kind of casual temporary work. So it's a combination, but I teach students, so it's also kind of can be like there's a lot I like I know a lot of people that I can ask. And then the person who's done the animation assistant is someone who's been out of school for a long time and 
has wor I've, I've worked with the animation assistant on a few projects, which is like someone that has really particular skills that I need. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of will often think about what it would be like if you moved and like you didn't know anybody and you'd have to find, because I feel like I've been here enough time now to have a lot of resources, you know, mm -hmm. and it must be so strange when you move to a new place if you don't have that and how, how you get connected with that stuff. Yeah, yeah, it really does hinge on just having time to build. I mean, so much of it comes back to relationship building in a lot of ways, yeah. um, like you said. So it's, yeah, it takes time. <laughs> I've been in the Bay Area about two and a half years now. And I only feel like just within the last maybe six months or so did I start to feel a little bit settled. Right, you know? right, like, yeah. It definitely, yeah, it takes time. It takes time. <laughs> you start to get to know people and kind of know what they yeah. do and how they work and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. There's always Facebook, but... <laughs> yeah, I was, it's funny, we actually... Um, well, there are two things that uh, you had said earlier that made me think of conversations Amanda and I have had recently. Um, but when you described just kind of creating a plan and writing all of your goals down, it seemed really relevant to a discussion we just had um, about goal setting. And so that was really great to hear about how um, important that is as an artist. But um, the other thing was just about using social media as a tool and how helpful that was for, for just research and just getting a sense before even moving out here of what was happening throughout the Bay Area. And it still keeps me informed of shows and artists. And it's, I think, one of the, the most helpful ways to make those initial connections that then hopefully lead into mm -hmm, more mm -hmm. um, substantial in-person connections. Yeah. But yeah, it's actually been really good for that. It's cool. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to ask a little bit too about your perspective, both as a practicing artist who's really involved within the Bay Area arts community and as someone who is teaching and working with students, um, how much a part of the conversation within studio classes you feel like this is or how often is your your experience I guess as a working artist coming into studio critiques and in, in classes um, and actually we didn't realize you mean like the professional yeah transitioning from this interim chair position within the graduate fine art program and we didn't realize that when we first had invited you on for your work, but I had started recently working at CCA as well oh, within cool. the career development department just a couple months ago. Right. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm curious because I'm very new to that community and just, you know, starting to get to know faculty as well as others around campus. Yeah. But, you know, very centered around the experience of professional practices and just trying to get to know, too, what that looks like um, within various departments across campus. So I'd love to know from your perspective, like, what do you feel is the role this plays in conversations mm -hmm. within studio classes? Or do you feel like there are, like, are students asking themselves these questions? How concerned do you think they are about what the reality of being a working artist <laughs> looks like? Yeah. Or is it really, like you described earlier, just kind of focused? on the work itself. No, I think that's changed completely since I was in school. Um, I'm mm -hmm. also, so I really only teach in the graduate program for the most part. Yeah, I, I don't teach that much undergraduate stuff. So I think that's probably a really different um, context. Mm -hmm. But in the graduate program, people are definitely thinking about it. I think they're thinking about it a lot. 
I think that if you talked to students who have recently graduated, they would probably say we didn't do enough or it was spotty. <laughs> but there is some, so basically like I have, there's a, a bunch of different ways this happens. I mean, we I teach also the exhibitions class, which is like the end of the the, we, we've started this model where the exhibition happens at Minnesota Street projects mm -hmm. within the semester. So we bring in curators to look at the work and talk about it. And that's one class where we do very directly talk about this stuff. So we bring in these curators to give people the experience of having a cold read from somebody who's working at an institution. We also talk about documentation. We talk about teaching careers. We talk about different things about working, a little bit about different things of working in the art world. I think that we don't get time to do that as much as people probably want to have those conversations. So we have these different panels where we invite people in. We have a three years out panel where we invite students that graduated three years ago to talk about what they're doing and how it's been mm. since then and what they've learned. Um, and then we have a panel that's sort of artists that are working in different ways. So because our students, it's an interdisciplinary program. And so we're trying really hard to make sure people understand that there's all of these different ways to be an artist and that they're all valid yeah. and that they should be really thinking about their own work and their own path and how they want to be an artist because there are people who are going to work in all these different branches, right? Like I don't, I mean, I think the art, yeah. the art world is a plural, like there's so yeah. many different paths. Um, and so that's a really important message that we try to bring to people. And I hope that we've succeeded in doing that. We also kind of try to offer, there's a few different residencies that we try to support people going to if they get them. So there's like the end of the year sort of things where they start at the end of the, after the exhibition, everyone's spending all their time like app applying for stuff and we're all writing references. And so there's that kind of thing. I think, I feel like people are like way, 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 way more conscious of the professional realm than I was. And that is, that is a good thing actually. But, um, I think I also have a lot of one-on-one -on -one conversations with people that I'm advising individually because I think that these things are sort of not the same for two people in a way. I mean, mm -hmm. I think everybody really is sort of coming out at their own pace and also their own stage. And there's like different, you know, we talk a little bit about things like don't just send your work to galleries with uh, you know, don't just send a bunch of slides out because no one will look at them. But really, if you want to have a conversation with somebody, target that. Like, look at what their program is like and whether it actually meets yours. Or if you want to work at this crafting fair, make sure that your stuff is like, you know, right for the context or it makes sense or something. Or it could add something yeah. new to that. Con you know, so we do try to talk about all of that stuff. But I, yeah, I don't know. I think it would be only the the alumni who would be able to say like whether we're really whether that's really happening. And I think that people hopefully our our, our I think our program because people are working with individually, they have the opportunity to work individually mm -hmm. with so many different people and including people that aren't teaching regularly at CCA. I hope that they have the opportunity to find the few people that are going to make a difference because I think like, I don't know, I think that's how things happen. Is it like a few people make a difference for you and it doesn't, yeah. you know, it's like, it's kind of not about like this blanket 
exposure to everyone. It's more about finding the right connections, I think. Yeah, like what's that thing Jerry Salt said about you only need to know seven people right, in the right, art world or something? Right, right. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting though because I think Amanda and I talk a lot about our own experience um, in art school and it's kind of ironic I think because we, I definitely wasn't thinking about those questions when I was a student, um, you know, and so despite having all of this access to this whole community of working artists, um, I don't think I was taking that step of just asking questions of my professors around, um, you know, how are you making your own life work? What did this journey look like for you? Um, so to, to that end, it wasn't as much a part of the conversation, but I think because um, I wasn't even making those those connections between the kind of academic setting and how, you know, there are all these artists surrounding me that have um, have walked this road before and yeah. have a lot of insights to share. Um, and so it's only, you know, now and in recent years where we've really, I think, started to have those more focused conversations mm -hmm. um, with other artists or to connect, you know, within a different context. But, but I wonder about that from, you know, your perspective, uh, like how much connection there is between your experience working with students in an academic setting and then your experience as a working artist and where do those things overlap beyond the, the dialogue part? Well, I mean, I think I have relationships with people who were students that are definitely kind of, you know, they're just fellow artists now. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's that transition and I think it happens, of course, with people that you have affinity with as artists, right? Because the stu mm -hmm. students are artists and they're just younger. I mean, or yeah. I don't know, not necessarily in age, but I mean, in artistic development. And so yeah. I think that like, at there's a certain point where that just kind of becomes a not, like it crosses over and you're part of the same community. And that happens, I'm assume. I mean, I guess I have to assume, I, I have to assume that that happens with like every professor with a certain with certain people because they have an mm -hmm. affinity for their work. And so they're, you know, so yeah, I feel like that's definitely the way I see it. Um, I know that this year, because like there was a, there was a bunch of people that left the marketing department. And um, I think that the people at, in our, in our program were feeling like the marketing around the CCA graduate program wasn't like actually messaging. It wasn't, there wasn't a lot of like exposure of the work that was going on, either faculty, alumni, or student work. And so I was like, I'm just going to do the Instagram. And it was so easy because I have so many connections with people that either went there or teach there or, or are there now that mm -hmm. it was fine because the news was just coming to me. You know, So I feel like it's, um, it's a pretty porous situation. I think just relationships just yeah. change after people graduate too. Yeah. Are there any other really important experiences or chapters of your career that we haven't talked about um, that you think would be important to bring up? I, I don't think so. I think we covered the main two, <laughs> two chapters. This may be a totally selfish question, <laughs> but as someone who listens to the podcast, yeah. do you have certain things that you really want to get out of it, like certain questions you wish that we would ask or certain topics you wish we were discussing or even things that you've gotten from the show that you've then applied into your own life? Oh, that's like, a great question. 
totally. I think selfish, selfish questions are probably the best <laughs> questions. <laughs> yeah. Um, How is Beyond the Studio? <laughs> and how can you help us? <laughs> or also, I feel like as an add-on to that, we could kind of broaden the question too to be like, are there things just in general that you wish there were more transparency around? Right, or right, like right. Questions that you yourself have. Okay, I guess it's not just about us. Yeah. <laughs> but it's also about the podcast. I don't know. I think it's like the I think what I really like about this I mean, I think it's because I think because I've had this two stage, like I feel like I started over again at some point and the world that I walked into was like way more organized. I mean, I, I just I think a lot more about all of these things about sort of career and how you move through career and all of that than than I used to. I think I was kind of really naive at the beginning. I think the conversations that are really interesting to me, like, are you know when the when the artists start talking about you know, these really personal rituals they have, or mm-hmm. they talk about mm-hmm. the way, I like to hear about the way they feel like people respond to them. And like mm-hmm. when there, when there are um, complicated situations involving that, you know, I think those are, yeah. those are really, or, or when they have to navigate, when they have to navigate things about sort of their public like I'm really curious about how people manage their public persona in a certain way mm, because yeah. I, you know I don't know because it's something that I feel like um I, I can't really th- I don't know I don't know if I don't know if I'm describing this right I think I I think I think about that because I sometimes I'm an Indian American artist and sometimes I'm an American artist and sometimes, you know, there's this like this whole question about the identity of the artist that's really complicated for people yeah. who are, I think for women and people of color in particular, those questions about essentialism become part of your career and you really have mm-hmm. to navigate them. And because I'm also mixed race, I'm like sort of in between things and like my work's not it's not hybrid. The hybridity of the work is not a mistake. I mean, that's just like the core mm-hmm. of it all. But so, yeah, yeah, I'm curious about those conversations when, are, that where people are talking also on the level of those kinds of things about the way they're received. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that's an interesting yeah. topic that you guys could talk about more. Yeah. yeah. It makes me think of something that Wendy Redstar, because um, you mentioned her mm. interview earlier, um, had brought up in her conversation, too, about, well, two things, actually. One was about controlling her own story or narrative, yeah, yeah. Um, just in terms of like the writing that gets put out there, like really kind of owning that about your own work and how you want the story to be told. And then also one thing that was interesting that I never thought about before is what happens when your work is a part of various museum collections or institutions and then starts to live a life of its own mm-hmm. and sometimes gets shown in contexts that you're not aware of or maybe not comfortable with and how there's just this um, kind of lack of control around what ends up happening to the work or how it gets shown. Are there any, not to just put the spotlight on (laughs) you, but are there any like examples that you're thinking of when this question comes to mind um, or like experiences where this has kind of come to, to the forefront? I think it comes to the forefront most often when it is a question of Indianness, the presence of Indianness in the work, because I think there are people who have expectations that that will be there, 
And mm-hmm. for me, that's like not the content. It's it, and also it 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 morphs in the way it's there. And I don't even know if it really. I think that actually even calling it Indianness is wrong. Um, but for me, it's a real. It's like a territory that's quite mysterious because my father passed away when I was really young, and so, and he was Indian, and my mother is like Euro American, white, mm-hmm. and so there's like this this way in which kind of that part of me ha- is. It's a sort of me talking about the unknown in a way. It's a it's a part of the conversation, but there's there's definitely like when I think that the conversations that get sticky for me are when or I don't know actually this it isn't so much in conversation. It's me, it's more about I really wonder about how I am perceived on that level because I think mm-hmm. in certain contexts I'm definitely perceived as. Indian American and in other ways I'm an artist of color in other ways I'm not and in other ways I'm you know so I really am curious about all of those conversations which are so they're at such a kind of height right now and mm-hmm. so to kind of be in a place where of of hybrid is is sort of generative and problematic at the same time you know and then the other there are other things that have happened like I know that there was um a work that was like being looked at for a certain collection that couldn't go into the collection because there was an image of, and these were like sort of, I do a lot of pretty collage work and there was an image that related to like Muslim mythology and history and one that related to Hindu mythology and history in the same piece of work. When I first started working solo again, one of the things I did was to start working with this collection of Indian mythological prints that ended up really informing the work visually in quite a present way. So I was reworking and remixing and remaking these mythological images, which meant that there was this very clear reference to the Indian continent in the visual aspect of the work, in the aesthetic. And so I think what happened, maybe, or I'm wondering about the expectations that that set up, because since I think the, that those elements of the work that refer to the Indian continent have become m- much more integrated into the other elements of the work and maybe more abstract in certain ways visually, even though the references are still there. And so that's just something I'm curious about is in terms of like how you make work that sets up expectations and then when it changes, what happens? professionally. And so, you know, listening to other artists speak about that would be super interesting. But the thing that I really wanted to clarify even more was just when we were talking about, we were having a conversation that was kind of about pulling back the hood on some sort of interactions that we don't necessarily, that aren't necessarily public. And so, yeah, I was talking about this instance where one of my pieces of work was up for an acquisition and the the work um, has elements in it that are sort of floating around. One of them is a reference to, makes reference to Islamic art history and mythology, and the other one to Hindu art history and mythology. And they're kind of, you know, not commenting upon each other. There's no hierarchy between them. They're just floating in a, in a space on a piece of textile work. And the acquisitions committee really felt that because of that, they they couldn't acquire the the piece and ended up cho- choosing something else. So that was a really important instance for me, you know, not necessarily about critiquing the museum or the the acquisition, the, the institution in particular, but 
just to say, just to think about how much colonial structures still inform these ostensibly liberal institutions. And it was a, a point of recognition for me that was very important, I think, you know, and also the way that current politics and what's happening in the political spectrum really affects the way things like acquisitions go down. And so, you know, as somebody who really thinks a lot about the persistence of colonial structures and ways in which, what kinds of power we have to counteract those structures, um, it was a really, it was important. And it was an important moment. And I think also, in a sense, you know, the relationship between the political spectrum and something like museum acquisitions is pretty obvious. But because I think my education was slanted a lot towards cultural studies and philosophy as opposed to art history, hearing about those kinds of things is really interesting, right? That was an experience that I had that no one would know. I mean, it's like, it's not public. Nobody would know about it. I'm not going to talk about like where and when that happened, but like, it's just something that like, I think those kinds of things are really fascinating. So like on your show, there's moments like that. There's moments where people reveal these sort of um, personal practices that they have to maintain themselves that I love hearing about. But also Mm -hmm. for me, it's also just great because I like a lot of the artists that you're interviewing and so when you get to hear you know I'm like oh this is great (laughs) because I can listen to the story of the people and you learn all of these things about these people and I think that it helps um kind of counteract the the sort of way that we always can kind of be led into comparing ourselves to each other based on like a set of benchmark career things that you should have done by a certain point or something like that. You know, I mean, like, it's so easy to get into that mindset, but it's way more interesting to actually listen to, like, where people are coming from and, oh, the work is like that because of that, you know? So, I mean, that's sort of what I... I actually listen to tons of, like, when I'm in my studio, there's certain parts of my process that are really, I don't know, sort of mechanical or sort of, there's sort of things where I want to be making, I want to be working and not have my own brain actually doing anything but listening and so I listen to tons of stuff when I'm doing that kind of work and so yeah that's when I like the storytelling stuff yeah that's interesting too um I was just looking through that book in the painter's studio um by Joe Fig and one of the questions in that is uh what what artists are listening to in the studio and actually there's another podcast now that I'm thinking about it called what artists listen to which is all about the playlist that they have in their studio right but I think that's that's a good question too is what what do you listen to when you're working if anything yeah I live well certain kinds certain kinds of things have to be silent which are usually like um, moments where I'm trying to write stuff like I'm writing is writing, writing can be really painful for me but I have to do a lot of it and you know I agree about that whole question of like what your narrative is but I sort of feel like I it's always missing something. But anyway, I so there's moments where I can't listen to anything. There are moments where I listen to podcasts or I listen to artist talks. Like I listen to a ton of artist talks by artists whose work I really like and I'm not even looking at the screen. And it's it's like I know what work they're talking about sometimes and sometimes I don't, but I also just like to hear about the way they talk about their work. And so there's that. I listen to music for certain parts of the work too. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I'm the same way. I listen to a lot of Indian ragas because I can't, sometimes I can't listen to music that has lyrics. So it has to be mm-hmm. instrumental. <laughs> yeah. I'll end up listening to the same song on repeat for 
sometimes an hour without even realizing it. It's more just about like getting into that flow state, I feel like. Yeah. And so just having the same kind of track playing uh, can sometimes help with that. Mm. And I don't think I ever listen to podcasts in the studio either. Definitely for other things. And it's funny, when I used oh, to do really? a lot of mural painting, I would listen to podcasts all the time because we, it was a little more formulaic in that um, or more methodical. Like we had these stages and we were just kind of yes. blocking things in. So even though it was painting, it was, you know, a little bit mindless. Whereas um, I feel like when I'm in the studio trying to really think through a piece or make decisions on something, then it has to, the, the voices become more of a distraction. Yeah, yeah, totally. And then certainly with any writing. Man, that's so different for me. I mean, granted <laughs> my work involves, I do a lot of hand-sewn stuff, yeah. so I'll just sew the same thing for hours and hours, and yeah. it's just the same <laughs> stitch over and over again. So usually when I'm doing something like that, I'm like, I need to learn something, or like, I, I need someone to tell me something interesting while I'm doing this really monotonous task. I don't know, at the same time, sometimes I'm like, I'm going to put on this techno playlist that's just going to be this like... Like going in the background endlessly where I can just get in the zone and not yeah. think about anything <laughs> yes. else, but kind of have a pace to work at. Yeah. Yeah. No, I have things like that too. I have li- I have these li- paintings that involve just like painting over the same lines over and over again. And then I, there, an animation is like very, can be super methodical and, you know, just mm-hmm. technical. So there's, there's those things that um, have to be listening to something. Yeah. Do you have any other uh, personal habits or daily rituals that are just important for your well-being as a person along with being an artist? I like to take candlelight showers at the end of my day. Lovely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's actually pretty important. I mean, I drink a smoothie every morning for breakfast which oh, sets me up and it's like too. a really important, that's pretty important. Oh my God, we're all smoothie gals. <laughs> yeah. Look at yeah. us go. Yes, oh, the yeah. breakfast smoothie. Smoothie is huge. This candlelight showers are huge. Um, I definitely, sometimes I say hello to Ganesh when I come into my studio because it's supposed to be the spirit of like road opening. And so, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to, to create a couple of rituals right now. One is to write a 200 word artist statement every day <laughs> because like really quickly because I'm having such a hard time with my artist statements at the moment and I think it's because I'm like making when I'm making new work it's the worst time for me to be writing um, so I'm trying mm-hmm. to do that I haven't quite gotten to the groove with it but I, I create rituals around certain kind of projects but I've realized yeah. that when I write something I do much better if I don't try to do it all at once like if I just write something and leave it and then come back to it and read it but I do I also I do write in a journal like quite a lot so when I'm really in the groove I'm kind of writing every day on some level and Ranu where can people find your work uh, both online and in person um, either throughout the Bay Area or any other upcoming shows that you might have going on online there's my website ranumukherjee.com which is pretty out of date but hopefully will be updated in the next few weeks and and Wendy Norris gallery Wendy Norris has some stuff on the website in terms of I mean there's also a few I don't know you can google me and find things there's some interview 
reviews and stuff online. But in terms of physically, right now I have a neon piece called Begin in the Window at Gallery Wendy Norris on Octavia Street. And that's a neon line drawing that is derived from a depiction of a, a Confederate monument that was pulled down um, in a protest. And uh, it, so it's the collapsed monument as a line drawing, which... Um, is yeah so that's in the window and then the other things that i have coming up mostly are not here well i'm, I'm doing i'm going to be showing a piece a video in the karachi biennial in october oh wow um which is exciting because i've never been to karachi and i think some stuff at expo chicago this fall and then i have actually my collaborative orphan drift has a show up at telematic called if ai were cephalopod that's just up till next Saturday. So I'm assuming this probably won't post before then. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you, you probably won't get this posted before that go, that comes down. Um, and then let's see, I have, I actually have a, an artist project in the, uh, the fall issue of Art Journal magazine, which comes out from the College Art Association. And that's like a 12 page artist project. Oh, wow. Which was fun to do. And then... My, I'm doing my next show with the gallery next year, so there will be I will be doing a show with Wendy in another city. <laughs> oh, exciting! Yeah, so as part of their new nomadic model. Yeah, their new model, which is kind of great for me because I did three shows with them here in San Francisco, and I think they've been doing a lot of stuff where they have you know the artists that don't normally show the, the artists that aren't from here are showing here, and then the people who are here are showing elsewhere. So, mm. yeah. Thank you so much for being on the show and for telling us your story and for making the work that you do. Thank you. Yeah, it was thank fun to you talk for to talking you. with us, Renu. Yeah, it was fun to talk to you. I hope that it um, is editable and interesting. <laughs> I felt very <laughs> oh, rambling. Already, I'm excited to listen back. <laughs> yeah, they're always so insightful, but we always experience what we call the vulnerability hangover right after the fact, too, where yeah. it's this like insecurity that wells up after we feel like we've just revealed all this information about ourselves and it happens every single time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The output is always amazing, so. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I usually feel a little rough after an episode because I'm like, I'm probably said something really stupid. And then when I go back to listen to it to start editing it, I always end up texting Nicole and I'm like, hey, it actually is amazing. It's a really good conversation. <laughs> Surprise. Yeah. We've only been doing it for a couple pattern. years and done enough interviews to kind of learn the basic ropes of it, but... That's great. Yeah. Cool. Well, it's such a good project. <laughs> so congratulations on that. It's really awesome. Yeah. Thank oh. you so much thank for being so a much. part of it. And just a quick reminder that right now, Nicole and I are in the process of looking for artists for season three, Beyond the Studio East Coast edition. So if you are following us on social media, you will see a little link in our bio that links to a survey where you can submit an artist that you want to hear their story, or if you want to submit yourself, that's totally cool too. So go submit. You have until the end of June 2019 to submit your artist for season three. And don't forget to sign up for our email list because you'll get that link in there too. That's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of the episode over at our website, beyondthe.studio. 
While you're there, be sure to sign up for our mailing list to find out about upcoming guests, special announcements, and podcast giveaways. Sorry, that completely got eaten. Oh, you glitched (laughs) out, Nicole. Start over. Oh, no.